Hi, my name is Pat, and I'm a happy Eleanor. First of all, I'm going to give you the bad news. And I'd appreciate if you would groan at you after each of these things. Okay, I have a cold sore in my mouth. Oh. Okay. I forgot to bring my sandals. Oh. So my feet hurt, okay? Good. The other bad news is that I'm, I, if I fall asleep, it's not because I'm bored with the company, <laughs> or the speak, speaker, but because we left sea level. Holy mackerel. Uh, we left sea level yesterday, and, and I and Blanche, she was saying, oh, out of breath. All I want to do is sleep. So Sunday, just about the time this thing's over, I'm going to say, let's go, you know, and everybody's, I know. But it's wonderful to be here, and we have met so many beautiful people, and everybody's been so gracious. And that bowl of fruit is just, the bowl's pretty, isn't it? But it's just, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, the, I'm just glad to see there's a couple of a, other AAs here. I'm not saving the joke, Sherry. Because I actually, almost always, I talk after my husband talks. So i got to be awful careful tonight. <laughs> also, I want to make arrangements for you all to meet with me after he talks, and I'll tell you the real story. Okay? You all know. And sitting here with Johnny, who's so full of energy, and I'm, you know, as I say, falling asleep, and... Uh, and Blanche and my husband are just, I can hear them just quipping back and forth there. And it's going to be bad tomorrow night, folks, I can tell. <laughs> We've had the pleasure of being at the same place with Blanche before, and uh, she's, a, she's a delightful lady, as you probably all know. So I'm supposed to tell you, not what it used to be like, what happened, what it's like now. No, <laughs> I, I used to say that. That's not right. That's not what it says. It says what I used to be like. What happened to what I'm like now? And uh, the old me would tell you what it used to be like and what it's like now because it was all I had to do. So I really... Uh, Cliff and I live in a, in a little town called Oceanside, not Ocean Beach, as it says on the, on the thing, but that's okay. And uh, it's, a, it's a reasonably small town as towns go. We call, I call it the insanity capital of the world. And that's really, we are, there's a lot of strange members of A.A. and Allen on there. But you love it, and any of you are welcome. Anytime. I have to, if I remember that, I can laugh, of course we all laugh at that insanity, but I need to remember that. Because I came into Al-Anon well. I came into Al-Anon perfectly sane. Uh, you know, it's hard enough for an AA to work these steps, but when you're perfect to start with, it's darn hard. And I really, I am so grateful, so grateful that I, that a higher power kept me coming to these meetings. And if anybody's here and they don't think their motives are right, as mine weren't, don't worry about it. Because the only reason I stayed around was to help you. And that is the truth. I came into Al-Anon because I had always been a good, dutiful wife. Nobody could ever say I wasn't that. And uh, I always joined the auxiliaries of anything my husband joined. And he joined Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went to Al-Anon after a few months. After a few months. I had to pout for a couple months. Because I had been for 20 years at this point showing him how he could handle his drinking. And he turned around to these bunch of strangers that I never even knew. He even held hands with them after the meetings. <laughs> and he was so happy. And I just had to spend a couple of months saying, I told you so, I told you so. But I'm awfully glad I came. Awfully glad. I don't know. Of course, we never know what would happen to us. But I, uh, number one, I don't think I'd have a marriage. Because if I hadn't had something that would show me what a an intellectual snob I was. Uh, I don't know where I'd be today. Probably out there still 
feeling better than everybody, which is a mighty uncomfortable place to be for those of you who have tried it. It's very uncomfortable. And uh, those that, that haven't, don't try it. Forget it. Uh, actually, I was, I was born and raised in a small town in California called, called Los, we pronounce it Los Gettis. It's, it's Spanish word, it's Los Gatos if you speak Spanish. We know that. But we natives say Los Gettis anyway, so don't, yeah. And uh, it means the cats. That's funny. It, it's, well, it was a wonderful way to grow up, absolutely wonderful. There were 2,000 in the town where I was born at the time I was born there. Um, I was a very, I have to say, pretty well-behaved young lady. Uh, I know now it was not because I was that way that I was naturally a well-behaved person. It's because I couldn't get away with anything in that town. All 2,000 people knew me. And if you go to try to smoke a cigarette out behind the drugstore, you know, they'll say, grab me, Patty, I'm going to take you home to your father. Anybody was anybody's parents in that town, which is really wonderful. It was wonderful. I was very secure. My parents loved me. I never doubted it. My mother had a drinking problem. Um, my, I have one sister who's four years older than I am, and you would swear today that we were not raised in the same house. It just it doesn't sound like the same people. It astonishes me, absolutely astonishes me. I can understand it a little bit. I think, uh, looking back, I don't have to understand that in order to be happy. My sister doesn't seem to feel that Elanon would be a place for her to come, and it's very sad to watch her at her age, such an unhappy person, and struggling so. Um, but it just shows you, a lot of us, a lot of what we are, a lot of what we are, I am, is what I really was going to be, my attitude. Because my mom drank, and I don't think it really bothered me. I cannot remember it bothering me till I was about 16. Um, I can remember parties and things. The act of drinking wasn't something that worried me until I was about 16. And then I began being very aware when I would bring my friends home from school and Mom would be drunk. Now, I don't know whether she simply got to drinking daily at that time or whether I never noticed it. I don't really know. However, a few months ago, we were going through some old boxes of my mother's. My mother's is is dead, and uh, she left her things in as a, as a chaotic a state as she lived. <laughs> I mean, it really has been an adventure. She's been gone 11 years now, and we still haven't gotten all those boxes of things. And nobody, everybody argues about who's going to do it, you know. But, it, you know, it, it, what it is is I get one box out, and it takes me four days, because I read everything in the box, and I say, oh, I remember someone's going to phone them, you know, a lot. But in this box, I found, I found a little poem that I had written when I was in, uh, in grammar school, and I was in the third grade. And it says, it's that, that paper, that old-fashioned paper that you all had to use a pencil on. It had little specks in it and lines. And at the top it said, Patty Baker, third grade. And it was a poem to my mother on Mother's Day. And it was kind of, you know, as poems go. Uh, but the last line went, And so I love you, Mother dear, even though you like your beer. <laughs> I have it. I don't know, I don't know what kind of a grade I got on the... Uh, in the context of that English teacher sitting here. But uh, it sure told me something. And wouldn't it you? I mean, isn't that interesting? Because obviously I was aware of it, obviously. But it, I wasn't unhappy. Um, the thing is that in our family, my father, oh, how I would love to have hit, had him find Al-Anon. Because I learned to be an Al-Anon at his knee. I really learned the way to, to um, suffer. Uh, I was trying to think of another word. There's just nothing better than that simple word, suffer. Uh, but he did it with grace and dignity and uh, the best of his ability. Uh, he felt terribly, terribly responsible for mom's drinking. Uh, now, he was raised in Nebraska on a farm, and uh, he and my mom, she came from Minnesota, and they had come out to California. And he was really 
from the old school that a man is responsible for the behavior of his family. And by the time mom's drinking got pretty bad um, in that small town, and that's awfully hard, awfully hard to keep a secret like that. The man was aging rapidly. Um, Cliff and I had gotten married, and he was able to see a lot of the aging in my dad, too. Um, of course, he didn't realize that my dad was aging for the same reason I was. <laughs> my mother and my husband were practicing the same disease, and my dad and I were. But, you know, to show you how um, how sick a person can get in that situation, and I, I'm sure I could, I would have reached this point without Alamon. I, uh, we live in, in the southern part of California, and they lived up near San Francisco, and I got a call that my dad had had a heart attack. Uh, actually, Cliff took the call at night, and uh, I was out. So when I came home, I had to decipher between my mother's condition, calling, and my husband's condition, listening, and try to figure out what had happened. So the next morning, our doctor, family doctor called us and said to get up there. My dad was in bad shape. And so I, I was a terrible thing for me because I had five little children, and um, I didn't want to go off and leave those five little children with this person who was drinking way too much at that point. And they were a little young. Uh, the, the oldest one wasn't old enough to take that much responsibility, and yet I felt torn, and I knew I had to get up there with my dad. My sister was out of the country at that time with her husband's job. So I flew up there, and uh, we got to the hospital about 10 at night. My cousin picked me up, and uh, I walked in the room, and at this time, there, I had never seen one of those heart machines. Now everybody has them in their rooms. You know, the little television sets they look like with the beats going up and down. I'd never seen anything like that. And I walked in the room and stood there, and it scared me. Uh, you know, it's kind of... Uh, it just looked ominous. And he looked over at me, and it started just jumping like that. And I, you know, God, I thought he was happy. I didn't know what to think. But I went over to his bed, and he says, what the hell are you doing here? Very unhappy. And I said, well, I, I thought, he thought, this must be worse than I thought. My daughter's here. That wasn't it. He said, get up there with your mother. She's drinking. The man was dying of a heart attack. Literally. He didn't die that time. He came very close. A few years later, he did after one of Mother's terrible drunken episodes, and I, during one of hers, actually, I, um, now today, with Alan on, uh, it's very hard for me not to be able to tell my mother that I understand the guilt she must have gone through. See, all I could do was see that she was, she caused it. Um, I didn't understand that. Uh, now I do. And I can't tell her. But she knows. She kind of sticks around. I don't know if you have any parents that do that, but she's, my mother's around a lot. You see her. <laughs> Now you wonder what's coming next from this weird... No, it's really, it's, it's okay. But I think any of you have probably experienced this when you go to make amends and, and there's someone you want to make amends to so badly and you can't do it directly. There's no way I can do that. It's very frustrating. And I've had to find some other ways to do that, which have been very fulfilling, and that is to find myself a mother who, doesn't have, who has a daughter that doesn't pay attention to her in our area. And it's been terrific, you know. And I have not just a mother, but I think you all know what I mean. Um, and that's the way my sponsor suggested I do it. And... Uh, I was very lucky to have somebody so perfect for the spot, really. But anyway, I was, uh, I was a very happy child, but when mother's drinking became a problem, I was the one that seemed to be, always be able to talk to mom. We were really buddies. And uh, what would happen is she her drinking would be worse, worse, worse. It would go on for a week, two weeks, three weeks. And um, my dad would say, my God, Patty, you've got to talk to mom because it's really getting bad. So I'd say, okay. And I would sit down with her and I said, Mom, you're going to have to cut this out. You're drinking too much. She said, you're right, I will. And she did. Now, uh, the next time that would happen, she would, we would go through the same thing, and he would say, you do that, and I would do that, and she would do that. And it all turned out. So when I got into this program, and they told me I was powerless over alcohol, I figured you guys were, but you see, I had this experience. <laughs> and you know, 
At first we laughed at it, but you know, I really believe, I really believe that. And so did my husband, because we sat before we got married at a little cocktail lounge in San Jose, California called Kelly's Bar. It was romantic to us at the time. We were going to San Jose State College. And um, he held hands and talked about his, that he tended to drink too much, but with my help, by my experience, we could do it together. And, you know, we, we kept trying to do that together for a lot of years. <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, he, and genuinely trying, both of us, him too, we'd get ready to go to a party, and he'd say, now, if you see me getting a little too much to drink, you know, say something, because I, gee, I don't want to get you know, drunk like I was last week. And so after, you know, I'd watch him and say, honey, um, you're getting a little too much to drink, and he'd say something rude. <laughs> Good work. So anyway, I felt that alcoholism, I don't think we called it alcoholism. I don't remember. We probably didn't dare say that mother was an alcoholic. But I uh, I went to a lot of trouble to uh, hang on to this Stella I met. I also didn't come in, into Al-Anon, or uh, rather I didn't come into a marriage completely astonished that this person had a drinking problem. And I've heard a lot of people say that. They say they had no idea that it was a problem. I can't say that. I wish I could. I'd like to just plead innocence. Um, the first time I saw my husband, I was at a party, a college party of some kind, with a friend of his, and I heard this crashing noise on the back porch. And I went back, and here was this darling little guy, looked like Vicky Rooney, still this little, and just crashing, breaking glasses against the refrigerator on the back porch. Just crash. And I never saw people do things like that in my life. My mother drank quietly. She didn't break things. And I said, what is that guy doing? And he said, well, that's Cliff Roach. He always does that when he gets drunk. I mean, it was kind of assumed that's what he did, and his friends liked him and watched over him to a great extent, so one by one they kind of, but I was there. But that's the first time I saw him, and I married him, so, you know, I won't say I fell in love with him that night. Uh, to tell you the depth of my feelings, uh, I fell in love with my husband probably about three weeks later when we happened to both be walking across campus at the same time, so we just kind of walked together, and we got to the edge of campus, and, he, and a bee began buzzing around him. He started having a boxing match with the bee. And it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. And, uh, and I, was, I was hysterical. I mean, I just was sitting against a tree laughing so hard, and it went on for fully ten minutes. Meanwhile, all the people driving by watched this boxing match. But I, have, I really think that's when I fell in love with him, which may tell you something about me. I don't know. But <laughs> And we, and I have to say, we have had a laugh after laugh after laugh for many, many years. Um, the part that wore me out was when the sense of humor went. Uh, that really was more than I could bear to watch. That was the death of the person that I had married. And I know a lot of people have had that experience. Um, we uh, eventually moved to Los Angeles and started having babies. Um, like our, my friend Winnie Eddie, many of you have heard her speak. She says, you have to keep track of these babies just like I did. You kind of just watch for them as we go through the story. They pop up. Because yeah. they were incidental. I have to say that. They were incidental. I was obsessed, obsessed with that man. Um, we, spent, uh, we spent a bunch of years in, uh, in L.A. while he was trying the acting profession on, which was not going too well. And then he decided to go ahead and use his teaching credential and we moved to a small town. Now, the drinking there was getting worse. But we had three children when we left L.A. to go into this teaching job up in this hot San Joaquin Valley. And um, 
It's kind of a big anonymous place, L.A. is. Uh, even though I'd get scared, he'd be away, and he always called me when he was going to come home. Drunk, of course. Gave me something to really worry about. I'm coming home right now, honey, and I knew I was stoned out of his mind, so then I got to think about all the things that could happen to him on the way home. You know? And uh, But it is a great big anonymous place, and people don't know that much about other people, and I didn't have to worry about protecting our family from this scandal like I used to have to do with my mother because that was very difficult in that small town. And, but when we moved to Manteca, we were right back in that situation because it was a small town. The word, I hated that place. The word Manteca in Spanish means lard. <laughs> I know, it really it sounds right. It isn't even, I mean, butter is mantequilla. They could have at least. It's just, it, to me, that it describes that town. It was awful. And, uh, but and when we moved into that town with our three kids, it was a small enough town that everybody knew who the new teachers were. There were three that year, I think, in the whole place. And uh, they not only knew each teacher, but they knew each teacher's wife and family, and they watched us. They really did. And, uh, boy, I had a hell of a time keeping that drinking. And he did real well. Of course, he shaped up when he started teaching and said, I don't think I'll drink like I, you know, obviously I'm not going to drink much. A little glass of wine on Friday night, you know, which lasted like two weeks, I'm sure you know. And uh, the first Thanksgiving we were there, all the teachers and the principals and all the administrators had taken a bus to San Francisco. It wasn't that far for what they call an in-service training day. I say that's what they call it because I'm not real sure how much in-service training, training some of those teachers get on those days. And Blanche is probably laughing too because I'm sure she's... But they went to San Francisco on this bus and they were supposed to come back that evening. And more and more time went by and no husband. Then the phone rang and it was a friend on the back. And he said, um, uh, did, did, did Cliff get home? <laughs> I'm trying to sound... I said, what are you doing home? He said, well, I came on the bus and he, he wouldn't get on the bus. <laughs> So there you see, I knew. My cover was blown. My God, the whole faculty knew. And about uh, 2 in the morning, I got a call. Happiest. Oh, honey, I'm happy. See, San Francisco was our, our courtroom grounds. That's, we lived in San Jose, which was not that far away. And when we could really save our proper five bucks and do something special, we'd go see a play and, uh, you know, maybe hit one of the, uh, they didn't call them bars, uh, nightclubs, I guess. And it was wonderful. There were fantastic performers. Uh, Dave Brubeck was a nobody back then, playing in a little place called the Burma Lounge. It was really exciting. And it was a very special place to us. And he, that's why he was being very nostalgic, you see. He was up there without, without me. He wanted me to know how much he loved me and how much he missed me. <laughs> and I think some of you know what that, oh. So he arrived home at 6 in the morning. Then, and I had these three children, and uh, it was Thanksgiving, and they'd been going to school and cutting out turkeys and doing all the things that children do. And, um, of course, he was back sleeping off a hangover. And uh, my oldest daughter said, well, when do we start work doing the turkey? I said, no turkey today. Why? I said, well, your father got drunk last night and he has a hangover. We can't have turkey. <laughs> now, you know, I don't, it made perfect sense to me at the time. <laughs> it's really stupid. It, it's really stupid. Because not only did he not give a, whether he had any turkey, he could have cared less. You know, I didn't punish him is what I'm saying. He really wasn't interested in whether he had turkey or not. So that was a mild form of insanity. Uh, compared to some of the things that were to come later. That wasn't as damaging, perhaps. We then moved to Oceanside, and we've been there for 20 years. Uh, we have had so many good times, so many good times. A lot of this piano playing was funny tonight, because it's been a lot of years since I just sat down and accompanied somebody. And uh, I used to do it often, because well, if you get a bunch of drunks together, they're going to want to sing, probably, <laughs> in four different keys. And uh, I got a lot of experience transposing on the spot and, uh, you know, just playing. It was really good for me, and I haven't done that in a lot of years. 
So I, I realized how rusty I am. But we had lots and lots of fun, and we had a couple more kids. Um, I began giving, I began giving piano. You know, when you get drunk a lot, you have a lot of kids. <laughs> that would be because I would occasionally really try to get drunk with him. I would really try. I never ever succeeded successfully, like an alcoholic. I just got sick or dizzy or whatever. It just the the first time, the only time that I came close to really getting drunk without being sick. I thought it would really show him because he'd have to haul me home and I would embarrass him. And much to my surprise, he was delighted. He thought it was wonderful I was going to drink with him, finally. So that didn't didn't work at all. But uh, the the city of Oceanside is a little larger and uh, it was a good, it's a good place to live it was then. And uh, and I began giving piano lessons to make money because the money seemed to be going somewhere all the time. Like, for example, he had a charge account at the liquor store. And uh, now Cliff always told me, and, uh, and I believed him, that when he, he, he's always taught, many years has taught night school at the college nearby. And that particular, one night a week, and that little check was his to do what he wanted with. That was our understanding. Now, uh, here I am, we just moved, we were broke, five kids, and I wouldn't have dared to have intruded on that private money. Now, I had no private money. That was my doing. All those piano lessons I gave went right into the rent hole. But see, I was writing the checks and balance in the checkbook. That's why uh, he didn't have to see it. And I became the manager of the money. Um, we would run low. we get paid once a month. Teachers do. We would run low towards the end of the month. He'd say, can I have a $5 bill for a bottle? Well, $1.50 for cheap vodka is what we would settle for. And uh, so immediately I became then, didn't I? I became the decision maker. I became the person to decide whether he would drink that night or not. And uh, most of the time I chose... To give him the money, um, because it was better than what would have happened if I hadn't given him the money. Uh, we could not afford that, and I was not at all letting him take the consequences. Obviously, uh, but that's the kind of—that's the basic way that I began taking over. Now I practiced and learned hard how to be a martyr, because that's some of us were in New York. We did a varsity martyr show. Oh, uh, the last year delegates did. The ones that were here were going on. That martyrdom. I had that to a fine, fine point. And you know, coming to Elmont, I had to start to break that habit. That took me six years. Six years of steady work to stop being a martyr. Uh, that's slow learning. Very slow learning. <laughs> and I had, I don't know, if I could harness the energy I used up being a martyr, we would never have to pay another utility bill. <laughs> I would, our laundry room was in, situated in such a place that I could, and of course always at night when he was home, sitting in front of the TV and arguing with it. Um, I could, I would walk through with this pile of things. Now, I could either go right from that little back porch area and through a small bedroom right into our bedroom with our things, or I could go from that back porch area through the kitchen, through the family room, through the dining room, through the living room, between him and the TV, and in the hall and into our bedroom. And so you know which route I took, of course, sighing all the way, and usually dropping something if I could, you know. And I, you know, I think back, that's just a, one small thing that I did. But I had to be doing it. I had to be at the kitchen sink looking like I was doing something important. Uh, the ironing, I know that a lot of us, I think one of the sure signs of a potential Al-Anon is to walk in the house and find the ironing in the doorways. Don't you? That is the flag of Al-Anon. <laughs> there we are. Yes. And then when they got wash and wear, you know, there's not a lot you can do with that. <laughs> but the old iron those shirts and starching them and all that, boy, that was a real sacrifice. 
But I, I, got pretty, I got pretty good about that stuff after I got into Alamon. The biggest thing I, the, of my martyrdom that I could not let go of was doing his typing. Now, God knows he wouldn't have gotten through college if I hadn't taken his handwriting and his spelling and done something with them so that he could turn them back in and get good grades. Uh, God knows he never would have succeeded as a teacher if I hadn't been there for him to do all this. The point, you know, it's funny, but the point I, I have to make here is that I set this whole thing up. I cannot blame him one bit. I set it up that way. I wanted him to need me in the ways I wanted him to need me. And uh, I just, uh, just like a um, homing pigeon, could zero in on what he needed. And uh, so then, of course, he began taking that for granted. Well, you know, that wasn't quite what I had in mind. And then he would come home and say, I have to have 12 papers by tomorrow morning. And I would say, when did you know this? He said, well, I knew it a week ago, but I forgot. And I, and rather than say, my God, I'm not going to do this. You could have given it to me earlier. I would do it. But you see, what I would do is wait until everybody went to bed until 11. He was usually passed out. Had the 11.30 news, 11 o'clock news on. And then I would put the typewriter up against the bedroom wall, the other side, and type. And go at it. Go at it. As long as I could stand it so that by 4 in the morning I was exhausted, of course. And the thing is that he was always passed out and never heard it anyway. But by golly... Well, I had been in Elmont a bunch of years, and it was very strange, but one day he came in and started to ask me to type something, and he stopped. He said, no. And I said, why did you stop? And he says, well, I don't know. And I said, because I was, I'll make you feel guilty if I do it. And he really wasn't trying to put a trip on me. He said, well, you know, and I said, I haven't done that in six months. And he hadn't noticed it, but I hadn't. And I mean, I hadn't in my heart. Because what I had done was learn to say no. I had learned to say, no, I can't do that typing tonight. I had a choice is what it amounted to, as simple as that. And I wasn't taken for granted. And the funny thing is that I probably typed more for him after that than I ever had before, and I probably do today, which is wonderful, but I can say no. And that was, that was the big important spot for me. Um, I was very fortunate, too, with a higher power. I hear some people really struggle with that. I can't say that I've ever felt deserted or I've never felt that I was going to be punished. And a lot of people come in these programs feeling that way, and I feel for them. My husband was one, and I watched this man suffer trying to reconcile that terribly, terribly difficult concept of God. Um, in this small town where I lived, we had, oh, I guess, eight churches, and my mom thought it was cool for me to go to anyone I want to. My mom was, a, was really cool. I mean, she was neat. Loads of fun. I'm sure she would have been a hippie if they'd had them in those days. <laughs> you know, looking back... But she was very, very broad-minded about a lot of things that I look back and realize how uh, lucky I was in that respect. Because I could ask my mother any question I wanted to and never worry about getting a comment that would make me feel put down or embarrassed or I shouldn't have asked it or anything like Never, ever. I can't remember ever being afraid to uh, say something to my mother about what I want to say. And uh, that's a very, very fortunate thing. I know that, too. But um, I would go to the, all these little churches, and, and uh, she would say, well, you're gathering a bloom from each garden and making a bouquet. And I think I did. She got a little upset with one church. I signed her up for something. <laughs> I was feeling real magnanimous. You know, they say, can anybody's mother help with this? And I did it, you know. And, and they kept coming to the door, coming to the door. They wanted more than cookies. You know, they wanted her there and, and you know, whatever else was involved. But other than that, she was very nice about it. And I think I carried that feeling about God. Uh, I converted to Catholicism. I Cliff was a Catholic. We were not, he wasn't when we were married, but a little later on he... In his attempt to find a spiritual answer, went back to the Catholic Church. I understand that now. Uh, so many alcoholics seem to do this. He says today, and, and others do, that booze kept him sane. And I believe that. I really believe that today. Um, 
Well, what it is is I've seen him nearly go insane without those. Is what I see. No, it really. That really. I, I am thoroughly convinced that that and many others that that has saved their sanity, because uh, that was the, that was something he could do to blot, blot out these terrible, terrible things that were in his head. Um, but I enjoyed the Catholic Church. The thing is that I accepted what I wanted. I took what I wanted and left the rest, right? Like we do. Uh, so I didn't have these guilt because I didn't know how to feel guilty about God. I didn't know how to. I assumed God gave me the sense to make decisions for myself. And I'm not putting down any religion when I'm saying this. I'm just saying that that was what I was taught to begin with. And I prayed. I remember particularly, um, it was the last day of school. School was out on Friday, and uh, all the teachers were drinking. No, I shouldn't say all, because I'm sure all of them weren't. But I knew that's what they were doing, and all the kids were home at noon, and there were all they were, all these five kids. And the phone rang. A couple hours later, it was a, quote, friend named Hal, who remembers things like that, though? I'll never speak to him again. So and he said, uh, my God, Penny, this man is so drunk. He is so drunk, it's terrible. Well, now, here I am with a phone, no car, five little kids, and this man over here is telling me my husband's drunk. I mean, what am I supposed to do? And he said, oh, God, he's getting in the car. Oh, he's driving off. We had one car, and it wasn't in too good shape. Alcoholic car, all the way through and through. And we were lucky to have that one. And I mean, I was scared because there I was in a situation where if he were arrested for drunk driving or whatever happened, there would go his teaching credential at that time, and it would have. I'm pretty sure. That's the way now. They don't seem to pay much attention, but they sure did then. And I closed. I went to my bedroom door, and I got down on my knees, and I prayed. And I prayed, God, get him home. And we lived quite close to where he was, which was the Miramar Bar. And uh, I opened my eyes, and he drove up. And I really felt that God had uh, had answered my prayer because I was so very afraid of him getting caught out there. And I went out to, to greet him. And uh, ten minutes later, I was back in that room on my knees saying, My God, get him out of here. <laughs> oh, And, you know, I should have learned there that I don't know, you know, be careful what I pray for. I might get it. I did not learn that then. I didn't. I only remembered that after I've been in Alma a few years. Um, I, I want to mention seriously a couple of things regarding the children because this is where my my self-respect was chipped away in myself was my raising of children I can lightly talk about their table manners and I think many of you will know that I'm talking about a great deal more than table manners um, it came to the point where we didn't really want daddy at the table with us if we could help it and uh, it was just in the other room and the kids were really misbehaving really genuinely when they should have been disciplined if I did that, you see, then the monster would have come in from the other room and done much worse punishment than they deserved at all for what they were doing. And now, that's funny, but it's true, and I think some of, the, some of what I did was right. I don't think I would change all that, because I think the kids having some peace at dinner time was perhaps worth it. But the point is that they have terrible table manners today. I mean, they're sloppy kids. They really embarrass me. They, now, I tell them now they're, eight, they're from ages 18 up to 28, and I say, well, now it's your problem. I mean, you can, you can do something about that now. But I really, that to me is a, is a nice little thing for me to look at as an example of how I compromise my own principles over and over and over again, particularly with the children, particularly that. Um, our 12-year-old daughter, when she was 12 and the youngest was 2, was a very responsible 12-year-old. And we live in a, a very nice little cul-de-sac where everybody knows everybody else and all the families stay there all the time. And it's like a nice little neighborhood. And the kids felt very secure. So when we would go out and I would leave her, kitties are named babysitting, I was not being irresponsible because, it, you, know, you know, I took care of things then. But what I would do, and thank God I didn't remember this until I had, I didn't even remember it when I took my fourth step and fifth. It was a couple of years later. I remember that one particular night, and I'm sure it happened many nights, when I had given her a phone number where we'd be. 
And um, we left that place. And I told her we'd be home at midnight. And we weren't. It was 3 in the morning. And there had been a lot of sirens that night. And we walked in the door, and that little 12-year-old was sitting there absolutely terrified. And um, it's still hard for me to talk about. I, I don't know. I hope I can forget that someday, but maybe I have to remember that. Uh, that was not because her daddy drank. He didn't do that to her. I did. I wasn't drunk. I didn't even pick up a telephone. That's all I had to do was pick up a telephone. Um, I can't hard, I can hardly believe I did that today, looking back. how It's just so hard for me. It's like a whole other person. Our, our boys, when they were about 15 and uh, 8, something like that, uh, were going to, oh, David, the older one, was going to go to Mexico during the uh, Easter weekend with his daddy. They, a lot of people from where we live go down and surf down there on Easter week. And they, don't, they do a lot more than surf. This is a particular boy that enjoyed something other than regular cigarettes. Let's put it that way. Fifteen. He was a handful. Cliff will probably tell you about him. Um, but Cliff wanted to take our youngest son. His name's Chris. And I, God, I didn't want that because I knew his daddy would be drunk and his brother would be stoned. And, and whoever else was going would be in the same shape because they would only go with people that would do that too. And I, I, you know, I shouldn't have done it. And I allowed that kid to go down and spend a week in Mexico, which is a scary place to be because, of, you know, it really is. They just throw you in the, it's not a good place to be without knowing what's going on. And this little kid, and it amazes me today. He doesn't seem to have any scars from it. He just talks about these wonderful times they had with our car jumping across whole fields. <laughs> God, the, the speedometer went up to 80 miles an hour, Bobby. Um, but that's pretty sick. That's pretty sick. And I like to say a word about sobriety because I look up, I looked that word up soon after we came in this program, and I, it doesn't say anything about drinking at all. It has to do with rational thinking. So I talk about my own sobriety. I have to do that. Um, there's, we have a, a book, as you know, for the last couple of years, an Al-Anon book called Living with Sobriety. It's excellent. Uh, try sitting down and reading that and looking at yourself. Um, just for fun, I've done that. And it's really <laughs> kind of startling, but it's, it's from the viewpoint of sane and rational thinking. Sane and rational thinking. But, as I say, I got into Al-Anon. Thank God I got into Al-Anon. It's changed my whole life. Um, I can't say that I like working the steps. Um, I told you, the first one I didn't need to work. Because uh, I had always managed my mother's drinking. By the way, I realize now, that's something I didn't know. The reason that I had control over mother's drinking was not because I had control, because mom was a periodic. I didn't know there was such a thing. She was going to quit anyway when she quit. You know, looking, of course, you know, I had no, but it didn't look that way to me. I forgot to mention to you that I was a psychology major. There's always at least five in every Al-Anon room and at least five nurses. Probably you raise your hand. I did not finish school. I just am, I married my term paper. <laughs> my final exam. It isn't final yet. Uh, that is really true. I really was, I helped everybody. Look out. If I'm near you, I'm going to help you. Uh, the neighborhood all came to my house for coffee. One of the reasons none of the housework got done. Of course, I kind of, it's because I had to stay up at four in the morning typing. Uh, that kind of thing. Sitting for hours. Gossiping. I don't like gossiping. I didn't used to gossip. I also think, this is my opinion, uh, I hear people say, boy, we were sure a couple of sick ones found each other out there in the world. I don't think we were that sick, uh, for the use of that word. Both of us were very well-functioning people when we got married. We had um, a lot of, of uh, there were a lot of things that we had that we needed for a good marriage. Uh, we have the, do, and still today have, have basic standards that are the same, and basic goals, and ba- the same basic feelings about marriage. Um, those aren't uh, 
uh, that's not a couple of irresponsible youngsters. We were reasonably well-functioning. I believe that the disease of alcoholism nearly destroyed both of us. I feel, for me, that I reacted exactly the way, whatever little weakness I had, now that's the one that would be built up and built up and built up because of the alcoholism. I think those character defects that were there to start with were, they blossomed and grew. I, it's a terrible word to use because it doesn't feel like blossoming when it's happening, that's for sure. But I really, uh, Elsa, there's a lady named Elsa Chamberlain lives in our area, and she's a wonderful, wonderful lady. She's been down on many, many years. And uh, when I was kind of new, I was complaining about, it's so hard for me to call these things character defects because so many of the things are what I thought was good about me. I mean, I thought that was good to sit down with people and, and talk with them. And she said to me, don't call them character defects then if you don't want to. Call them character traits that you can use one way or another because that's what they are. Uh, it's not that you're, the fact that you enjoy or want to reach out to people is bad. It's what the way you do it and how you do it and the sense of responsibility you have in your motives. And, uh, and it made all the difference to me and I could take the rest of the character defects and do that with them. And I can be, I can approach and be, and it seems to me it's easier for me to try to correct one. The kind of footwork that God gives you to do, I found with those other steps, you turn it over but he doesn't take away all that footwork. You probably noticed that too. And, uh, I mean I pray for patience and he gives me things to practice on that make me learn patience. And, uh, but it was easier for me to do that because, uh, even though I'm sure, you know, all the outsides of me were calm, cool, and just functioned beautifully too well in a lot of ways. Of course, I look back at that. I was frantic. I was on any committee in town. You know, I took care of everything. And uh, that's not uncommon among us. I hear that a lot. Um, but I just, uh, you know, looking back, it's been easier for me. And I don't hope I don't take the easier, softer way. But I think sometimes somebody says something when I'm supposed to hear it. And that was something I was supposed to hear. And even today, I can start immediately on a character trait when I can say that about it. And it also has helped me in being comfortable with other people. Because some of those character traits that the person I'm married to is, I'll call him my alcoholic, uh, has, um, are for, well, let's put it this way. I never get bored. Uh, if you've talked with Cliff at all, you, you know that already. And if you don't, you will tomorrow night. He's not what you call boring. Uh, I may get hauled off to the loony bin, but not bored. But I was able then to take that and with my children and say, you know, see that. And see that the very things, I wouldn't want to take away the other side of that, that spontaneity, that terrible temper that scares hell out of me. Because the other side of that is, is spontaneity. And, and, uh, and those things that go with it. The other side of sarcasm is a sense of humor. Sarcasm was my middle name. And, uh, and I was able to say, there's a difference. I don't have to say having a sense of humor is bad. All I have to do is remember how I'm supposed to use this sense of humor. And that's been a big help to me, too. Um, however, I did have to learn to apologize. Now, for 19 of the 20 years that he drank, I apologized for everything. I apologized when one of his students acted up in school. And I wasn't there, but I apologized. Because <laughs> it obviously spoiled his day and he was going to have to drink because of it. And, I, of course, I apologized for all the things we all apologized for. The, we were out of money. God, I'm sorry. You know, all the things... But the last year I was drinking, I was sick and tired of apologizing, and I was not going to do any more of that. When I got into al they told me this program was for me, and that uh, it was time for me to think of myself. Now, I did, like many of us, I didn't release with love. Joe and I were talking about release with love. I rejected with superiority. <laughs> yeah. 
I, it's real easy to feel superior to a guy that comes home and passes out at 7.30 and lays on the floor all night, isn't it? I mean, what, what trouble does that take? So I remember coming home from Al-Anon one night when it was all beginning to sink in, saying, okay, you guys, I lined up, oh, I forgot, I lined up my five kids, my husband, and my mother, who was living with us. I didn't mention that. My husband insisted that she come and live with us after my father died. Now, those two really got along well. <laughs> I never had mother-in-law problems like that, I'll tell you. In fact, they burned up three blenders making mar- margaritas. It's expensive. Mom just loved her. He loved her. And I'm glad that that was like that. I'm glad it was like that. But it wasn't all that easy. So here were these five kids who were not too well adjusted by this time. The oldest daughter was in a really sick relationship with a young man. I mean sick. You know, we could see it. She was just um, being completely used. Our son, next in line, I'll steal my husband's line. I have no better way to say it. Was working his way through high school selling hashish. That's what he was doing. It really was. He had... Uh, he had got everything he needed that way. That doesn't sit too well. He's also using a little LSD. This is uh, 11, 12, 11 years ago. And it was more, well, everything was more scary then. We didn't know much about it. He used to keep seeing these flashing lights. And he'd go, what's that? And Clint would say, I don't know, I don't know what's that. You know, he'd be drunk. <laughs> I'm telling Clint, Clint's story. He talks about that more than I do because that particular son was very instrumental in his sobriety. You know. But that, you know, that's, and then the 14-year-old daughter, the one in the middle, was the one that at, Six weeks old, I was telling somebody I could see was uh, this girl is going to be trouble. I, you knew. I could tell by holding her. And she was. Uh, she was. But she's delightful. I, her name is Jan, and I always say one thing with Jan. You never, ever, ever doubt how you stand with her. You always know. Pretty much true with this one, too. Uh, she, Jan, I think, is incapable of playing games and has always been. Of course, that got her in a hell of a lot of trouble around the house because she didn't have the sense to keep her mouth shut. And the other kids did. But this little girl was obviously not a very well-adjusted little girl. She was going out the window every night. And, and the other, the younger kids were having problems. One was a bedwetter and all the things that go with this. And the insecurity, and I could see all this, you know. And I uh, I was so, um, I was sick and tired of the whole bunch is what I was. But I was I was a person that, that uh, took my responsibility seriously. And I remember I had asked God one time a while back, what do you want me to do with all these people? You know, where have you put all these people in my life? What am I supposed to be doing with these people? So what I did then, you see, was reject them with superiority. I came home that night and I said, okay, you guys, you've had 20 years. Now it's my turn. I'm going to take the next 20. Now, I don't know what I was going to do with my turn. I hadn't figured that out yet. I just knew I was going to have it. And that is why I particularly emphasize that if I had not stayed in Al-Anon, I would not have a marriage today. Because how he stuck through me when I went through that, and I did go through it, um, it's, I'm just very, very grateful, and I'm just grateful that I had a place where people would say to me, for God's sakes, cut out that crap, you know. Um, the single hardest thing I've ever had to do in this program was getting out of the relationship between my husband and our oldest son, David. Uh, that was so painful. Um, I got a sponsor. I couldn't find one in our little town that was proper for me. <laughs> So I went up to West L.A. We had a lot of friends up in West L.A., and I found a lady there. Now, that is, you know, you know what I'm saying when I say that. That's very true. But at the same time, you see, God was helping me because I was afraid of that woman. Um, it's ridiculous. If you met her today, you'd, how could anybody be afraid of her? That's, you see, I was being led to her. I needed somebody I was afraid of because I wasn't afraid of anybody. I never was afraid to walk up to somebody and talk with them and help them if that's what they wanted. And, uh, I, and I was afraid of that lady. I was so afraid that I... 
I could hardly, I had to think over and over what words I was going to say. Now, how long does it take to say, will you be my sponsor? Five words. It was painful for me. Now, that lady, thank God, said yes, and that began a program. But see, as I say, God put you in. Of course, it's not that the people in Oceanside weren't perfectly good sponsors. <laughs> They're wonderful, but that's the one I needed right then. She said to me, you've got to get out of that relationship. And I, you know, I tried to explain to her, this is, uh, David was about 18, so it had been a couple of years in the program. I said, I can't, they're going to kill each other. Um, or Flint's going to kill David because David won't fight back. And um, I can't do it. And their arguments, see, I'd spent all these years with these two. When they start getting at it, I would walk up to the two of them and say, now slow down here. Now David, I know your dad sounded like he was angry, but he's not really. <laughs> then I would say to Cliff, now honey, David has trouble articulating because you're scaring him. And I don't know how they made it through all 18 years without me. I had to get out of that. And it's, you know, it's funny to look back on, but I mean, that was painful. And I knew I had to, and I couldn't do it. I kept um, uh, getting in the room. So I find the only thing I left to do, and this is what she said to do. She says, you walk out that door. No matter what's happening in your house, you walk out that door and go somewhere. And I did. Finally, I walked out the back door, and I, uh, and I walked for a couple of hours, I think, and I was crying almost the whole time. I, really, I was very frightened. I really was frightened. And I, my husband was sober. So uh, many of you know that the, all the answers don't come with sobriety. In fact, some new problems arise. Um, I stayed out, but when I came back, whatever had been said had been said. I've fortunately never had to ask what that was. And uh, I have never had that much difficulty since that time letting go of the people I love. Because that's the most painful thing for me, is to see the people I love suffering. And, uh, and knowing that I am the worst person to help them, probably. Probably the worst one to help them. I want all my family to love each other. They're not supposed to fight. You know, they're not supposed to get unhappy. Um, I saw very little anger around my house when I grew up. I'm sure it was there to some extent. I didn't see hostility to speak of that I can remember. Uh, my husband, it was a bundle of hostility. And after, even after he got sober, and it scared hell of me. I didn't realize then, but I knew later. You see, I had never allowed myself to be angry because I had been taught that by a very loving grandmother who was, was wonderful. And thank God she was in my life for many reasons. And gave me a lot of help in a lot of ways. But one thing she said to me apparently stuck, and that was that nice girls don't get angry. Also, nice girls always carry a clean handkerchief, but I'm sure I have one. Yes, I do. Um, see, <laughs> habits die slow. I'll keep that one. But uh, what I did with that, of course, over the years, was I decided that if I was felt angry, then I wasn't a nice person. Now, what do you do with that all those years? You know, it just piled up in me. Also, I didn't know what to do about somebody else's anger, because they mustn't be angry either. I had to fix that. Uh, that, when somebody said such simple words to me, and it was a person at a meeting, there's a page in our Odette book, and I can't remember the date, but it says, listen to the message, not the messenger. And it talks about what I needed, is don't be so intellectually superior that you can't listen to what somebody's saying because they, you know, don't say it the way you think it ought to be said. And, uh, see, this is what I'm so grateful for. These are the things that God has given me, is to be able to see these things. A little girl turned to me, broken English. She says, let him be angry. Simple as that. Well, I never thought of that. <laughs> Just let him be angry. So I began learning the tricks of the trade. Now, I had to be a kindergartner when it came to changing these old reactions of mine. Uh, mostly I had to go sit and write them down like a kindergartner, and I say that because it's true, and I'm glad that's the way I had to do it. I'm glad I found out I couldn't do it without doing that. I'm glad I fell flat on my face every time I tried to stop a game, stop a reaction, and it would everything would go wrong. I wrote down little one-liners that would serve any occasion, you know. Uh, and, and memorized them. And the first time I remember, really, one of those just came out of my mouth without my doing, 
Clint had come home, and I was, uh, the hat was messy, which was no big surprise, since I was teaching all afternoon and raising five children, <laughs> typing all the time, <laughs> but not filthy. Now, my mother's house had been filthy the last ten years. I mean, disgustingly filthy. And he knew all he had to say to me was, boys, it's starting to look like your mother's house. And I was saying, oh, come on now, it doesn't either look like this is clean, and look what I did. Well, the reason it's dirty is because look what I did do over here. See, I sat there trying to balance the checkbook, you know. Always explaining myself, always justifying, always somehow. And he came in and said that, and I was peeling carrots, and I said, that's true. And, you know, he looked at me, and he had nothing to say. I agreed with him. Uh, It didn't look like my mother's, but I didn't really care. And I just said, that's true, and it ended it. And I found out, I, I, I mean, it ended that one thing. It never came that easily. But I found out I had to learn. I don't want to give away too many of my tricks here in front of him, see. I still use a few of them. Uh, but I did have to learn uh, how to change my reaction. Somebody called them habits, and I think that's exactly what they were. And many, most of that was simply having a few lines that would be hopefully not rude. I tried not to be rude about it. And uh, yet say what I needed to say. Uh, and mainly stop the conversation, because that's the most important thing to me, was not go on with it. I don't have to have conversations that start that way, you know, insulting me. I don't have to. Uh, and he doesn't want to either anymore. I mean, neither one of us like it. And I, of course, was just as guilty of doing that. I tried my, I had my own bag of guilt trips, you know, that I could send on him, and he had his online, and I think we all do that. I learned a lot of my mother's side, certainly that early morning guilt, that, you know, the morning after guilt, that's a great one. For anybody that knows how to do it, timing is important there. <laughs> Between heaves, you know, before the first drink or something like that. Yeah. Um, also, but it did tell me that I had to apologize. Uh, and I said, Dad, you know, all these years that's all I've done and I quit apologizing. I'm not going to do that anymore. Everything is not my fault. And this person said to me, oh, well, we're not really saying it's all your fault. See, I thought it would let him off the hook. I apologized to him and said, I'm sorry. They would let him off the hook, and he couldn't even take any responsibility for whatever it had been. And she said, well, you're just going to have to start doing it. You're going to have to start saying it. So we had a particularly difficult disagreement. I had walked away and got to do it. And the reason I did it was not because I wanted to. It's because I didn't want to have to tell my sponsor later on that I hadn't done it. And, you know, I didn't dare lie to her because I wasn't sure what they did to you if you lied to (laughs) Nellie. My friend Winnie Eddie says, you know, you see these people that come in and they disappear and you never see them again. And she told me, what happened? Did they lie? Is that what they do? So anyway, we had a particularly, a very, very unpleasant disagreement. And I walked back in with all my courage. I said, Cliff, I want to apologize to you for the way I reacted to your childish and immature outburst. <laughs> you got to start somewhere. <laughs> and now, you know, I can laugh because that's really true. That is such, and I don't think he, he realized that I said it, you know, but it's, it's really true and it's just so, how could I? But I, I say I compromise my principles here, there, and everywhere, a little here, a little there. And uh, I would never have made a jump that big. Uh, I think I started just a little bit of here and a little bit more and a little bit more. And each of those little adjustments really were not that um, wrong. I mean, they were the kind of adjustments that I think we should make in a marriage, it, se- it seemed to me. But you see, I, over those years, I had adjusted all the way out to here. Now, I would never have jumped from here to here. I would have seen it. I would have said, there's no way I would be like that. There's no way. But it didn't happen that way. 
Uh, my story isn't very dramatic. I, uh, I have to always mention that because I have heard some real gory ones. We never had the uh, utilities turned on. My husband never lost his job, um, which I have mixed feelings about uh, because the job was, I mean, I like that steady income, but he teaches and, uh, and coaches debate, debaters, and they're very smart kids. They're also very motivated kids, and they, they're usually wonderful. And we had these five kids at home, you see, that weren't so wonderful. And uh, when he would spend hours with that speech team, and he'll tell you about that, and not spend those, and not, not drink while he was doing that either, and then come home to our children and drink, and then say to me when they did something wrong, I wish they weren't my children and those speech students were. Now, see, that was sick. That was the, the disease talking. But I didn't know that. And I thought I had to scramble around madly and try to make those children what somehow he thought. Now, today he doesn't want him to be that in either. He doesn't, you know, but he's a different person. And I am too. But that, uh, I had some serious resentment there and it's nice now. Um, I like to help with his, with his activities at school and I always have. And I'm not a martyr about that anymore. I do what I want to do and that's all. And I used to just be in there all the time helping him out. And I, I do and what I can enjoy doing and that's all. And it's nice. It's very nice. Um, but on with my life. Oh, Jeremy, I haven't dozed off, have I? See? I must, must be interesting. <laughs> We've had some, uh, a lot of growth in our marriage. We've had 11 years since sobriety, 31 years. A lot of our friends who kind of came in at that same time, couples that came in, have, have gotten uh, divorces or breaking up. And uh, that was painful for us because we thought the program's not working, which isn't true, of course. And... Um, it was working. It was helping these people see what they needed to do. But we started fighting with each other about their problems, what we were doing, Till one day he, he says, wait, wait a minute, listen to us. By God, you know, we're going to get a divorce over their divorces. And, you know, we had to very, and now, see, I have to do this all the time. Not That's, that's why I brought this up. We can't compare ourselves to the, that couple over there or this couple over here. And I can't compare myself to you. I can only compare myself to what I was yesterday. Uh, thank God that's all I have to do. That's a hell of a lot easier, you know. Uh, takes a lot of load off me. I don't feel like I have to teach piano every spare minute. Uh, my husband looks at the checkbook today and, and suffers with it just like I do. <laughs> they tell you one of the promises that you will lose your fear of economic insecurity. It's in the big book. And we've lost our fear of economic security. We haven't lost economic security. Just <laughs> a lot of insecurity, just the fear of it. Uh, <laughs> But see, I don't have to be martyr about that. I don't have to be the one that suffers. Um, I learned, and also I am very active in service, and I like to mention that because a couple of the things that happened to me, one in particular was the biggest step I ever made was after a Saturday meeting. Uh, the reason it was a Saturday meeting is because I had to have a meeting, and that's the only meeting there was, was an intergroup meeting or something, some kind of a, a service meeting, and there they were, so I went there. And I sat there and listened, and somebody talked about using principles about personalities, and I could see it working, and I... I think I understood the concept when I heard it, but I watched it work. And uh, I didn't know it, but took home with me what I needed a few hours later. When our 14-year-old daughter, who was absolutely diff- oh, she was so difficult, would be standing there, I but everybody else is doing it, and she was the only one that did this with me. And she would say, I hate you, I hate you. Uh, and I didn't like that. And uh, I said to her, no, you can't do whatever it was. And she said, I hate you, I hate you, they're all doing it. And all of a sudden I realized about that tradition and I said, Jan, it's more important for me to like myself than for you to like me. And that was principles about personalities. And, of course, she stood there, too. Later now, it's been 10 years, she uh, still talks about that. 
She says, boy, I knew things were going to be different. <laughs> and they were. And you see, that was a, that was a tradition. That wasn't a step. That was a tradition. Uh, the, um, the, the traditions uh, have helped me with my family, um, trying to look at the good of all, trying to really stand back and say, am I really doing what's right for me, or am I just being selfish? And that wisdom to know the difference, that's such a thing, isn't it? God, that's tough. And as long as I sit around trying to figure it out, I'm in trouble. Now, I have a sponsor today that, well, it's not the same sponsor, but she sponsored the one that sponsored me. It's simply because they moved around. And it's the same kind of sponsorship, and she knows that I have this weakness of reading self-help books. Um, and a few years ago, I had read a book called Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? Now, there's nothing wrong with that book. I don't, you know, I have no... But it wasn't for me, because in there, somewhere, I can't quote it, but it talks about the really meaningful relationships that people can have. The absolutely, completely honest, with no fears relationship that people can have. And so I followed Cliff around for about three days, communicating, you know. And he says, what do you, what do you want, what do you want? And I was really getting angry, I'll tell you. And I finally I called her and I said, yeah, you know, I'm sick and tired of this crap. That's what I am. I said, oh, you and I am working and struggling and just trying to make something of this damn marriage. And he doesn't care. And there's this long pause. She says, Pam, what have you been reading? <laughs> you say, this is why I have a sponsor. And I hope you all do. And I just said, oh, you know. And I told her. She said, so she asked me today, I am. I get to read one Psychology Today magazine a month. <laughs> and I mind. I mind my sponsor. Uh, the thing is that I walked around feeling guilty because, particularly to my spouse, the alcoholic, and, and uh, my own feelings, said so. I didn't have the right food for dinner. I didn't keep the kids quiet enough. I didn't see that they got better grades. I didn't, I didn't. Now, my head knows that I was not responsible for those things, but the guilt was there. The thing is that I realized I was feeling guilty because I was guilty of some things. I was guilty of compromising my own principles. I was guilty of doing things that went against my basic, um, you know, telling lies. It's a simple one. Lying to my husband because it was the expedient way to do things. Sneaking into the bedroom after he passed out and getting some money out of his wallet because he never realized, knew how much he'd lost or not. And I felt guilty because I didn't think that marriages should be this way and I felt like a, you know, I was creeping around behind his back. Now, if I had Alan I think I would have gone in and taken the money, but I don't think I would have felt guilty. Because <laughs> we learn to be practical, don't we? You know, but that's what I was feeling guilty about, you know? And so then when I can look at those things and start working on those things, then the world falls into place all around me. I feel that if I can look at what's right for me within a situation, and I don't have any other answers, and I can only do my best to see what's right for me, it's going to be right for the people I love. And I find that that's true. It doesn't look right sometimes. Uh, because what, what's right? I don't know. We hear the expression, the seemingly bad, uh, meaning, of course, that there is no bad. I'm not quite that spiritual that I can say there's no bad in the world. But I uh, many times have that wonderful feeling of flow, the flow that goes through these fellowships, uh, the flow of love that is, to me, the higher power, the, uh, the power um, of just letting it happen and trusting and trusting. Uh, of course, one can go overboard there, too, and I wouldn't suggest that. I'm talking in terms of sitting back and letting God make all your decisions for you. That doesn't work too well either. Uh, the footwork is unpleasant. Many times to me the footwork is having the courage to say something. That, as I've been the delegate from California, this is my third year from Southern California, and one of the things I've had to do is I felt I had to point some things out to that assembly because I saw them as 
needing change. I had to do the footwork. I had to not take any responsibility for what the results of that was. In doing that, uh, there were some people that are very, I won't say powerful, but they scare me around that area that had been there a long time that I was rubbing the wrong way. And I just had to, it's just exactly, it's the principles of personality. I had to do the same thing there that I had to do with Little Jan all those years ago, was say, I've got to do the footwork that I see to do. And the results are in God's hands. And that's nice, too. To have the results in God's hand. My, um, my daughter Jan has a lot of funny expressions for Alanon. She just usually poo-poos it. But occasionally, occasionally, she'll, you'll see her with her one day at a time book, which she asked for one time when she was in the hospital and very frightened. As far as I know, she never opened it and read it. She just held on to it because she knew there was an answer in there. That's interesting to me too, and I brought her one. But she says, when I think I'm releasing, she said, Mom's gone into neutral. <laughs> and you know, thank God there's a neutral for me. Uh, I try not to stay there too long. That's not the best place to live for long periods of time, I don't think, because um, with, the, with the pain in life goes the joy. Uh, there's a movie out. I haven't seen it, but I saw a little uh, preview of it on TV. With It's called God Number Two. It's got George Burns. And, and he's talking to a little boy, and the little boy is very upset about some tragedy that's happened. And he says, um, as God, he answers him, and he says, I never figured out how I could have a front to something without a back. And, of course, that's so simple, isn't it? And that's our program to me. There's backsides of things. And they're unpleasant. They're like dirty alleys sometimes. I also, it's very important for me to remember that, we, that I am living with and associated with a deadly disease. That is not just in alcohol. That's true, too, in the alcoholic. I've seen some Alanons die one way or another from this disease. Uh, and you know what I mean by one way or another. It's certainly suicide. My mother took her own life as a result of this disease. And I've been in Alanon for a few months and, uh, and didn't have to feel responsible for that. She was living with us. Uh, I knew that I was not responsible for the fact that she chose her own, to take her own life. And that has that had directly to do with alcoholism. It didn't show that on the death certificate, but that's what it was. Uh, i got to remember that we deal with that. When I was in New York, we got, we got news that one of my husband's babies had, had shot himself, and he had a wife and little children. And, uh, and uh, I stayed up most that night angry because he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. Uh, and then realized that we, I have to remember this. Um, there's a song from a, a cute little show called You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and it's called Happiness Is, and a lot of people do this. You know, they say happiness is we all express our own ways, and I, and I love it. I don't remember all the words to it. I, I, they're simple. They're simple things, like happiness is two kinds of ice cream. And at the very end of it said happiness is being loved by you. And to me, that's Alma, is being loved by you. Thank you so much.